So we are so glad that you are here with us today. Um, I'm going to, my name is Cody. I get to be the pastor here. I'm going to read the scripture here in just a moment. But before I do that, um, one of the things that we like to do once a month here at the table on the third Sunday of the month is we like to give a finance update and let you know where we're at as a church, like how much money we've taken in, what we spent, where we're at. Um, and also, um, uh, once a quarter that we, we say, hey, this is a quarterly update and today is that day. So we're giving you the, the update from January, February and March. So here we go. Um, our first quarter 2021 finance update, our budgeted tithes and offerings the money that we budgeted for us to take in you guys to take in as a church was forty five thousand three hundred twenty five dollars and our actual tithes and offerings was forty seven thousand seven hundred and seventy seven dollars and sixty seven pennies so yeah so we met we met budget we we did what we were supposed to do we are a church plant we are so um also funded out of the offering plates of other churches um back in oklahoma and our outside support for the first quarter totaled $8,173. So our budgeted income comes together for $51,908. So almost $52,000. Our actual income was $55,951. So almost $56,000. And get this, our actual expenses was only $50,707. So... If you take what our actual tithes and offerings, not counting outside support, which was about, which was almost 48,000, and our actual expenses, which were just a little under 51,000, we're only about $3,000 shy of like paying our own bills. Um, so that's a good, good thing. That's a step toward maturity, and that's where we want to be by the end of this year. So, with that said, um, if you're wondering, um, should I start giving to this church? The answer is yes, you should. Um, yes, that would be a good time. We want to make that 3000 up. We want to be um, not self-sufficient because we are dependent upon God. We're not just dependent upon ourselves, but we do want to be a self-supporting church. We do want to be a church that's paying our own bills. So um, we're also a generous church. We give away money to missions. We give that through this um, cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. We give to Acts 29. Um, this is, in fact, church planting Sunday for Acts 29, where we're emphasizing church planting and putting that out. And as I understand it, we have someone here today. I haven't got to meet them yet, but is planning to plant a church. And so um, I heard that from one of our greeters. Please see me afterwards. I will be the one in the red mask. Okay? Um, I'm like, I think I'm like the only one that has a bright red mask today. So find me afterwards. All right? Um, so we, and we give to our local association here and we gave, uh, we gave this past quarter $5,255 away for church planting efforts all over, um, the globe. So with that said, you say, well, what did we do here locally? Our youth, um, a couple of, I think it was the Sunday after, um, Easter did a bake sale. They said, we want to do something to bless the teachers here at this school. And so they had a bake sale. Um, they, they, they cooked their own goodies and all that good. So, uh, just, it was fantastic. There really was some, like, there was one, one family that made some cookies and I was really kind of bummed that I didn't get one. Cause these things look like they came out of like a better home and gardens magazine. So, I better homes and I don't even know if that's around anymore. I probably just dated myself. Anyway. Um, anyway, but they, they, they took, they like were able to give like a considerable amount. I think it's like over $400, um, that were able to just bless and ask the teachers, what do they want? What do they need? And we're in the process of getting that or they've already got it for them. It's fantastic. So our youth, good, good job, guys. Good, good job. Um, 
You say, well, how do I give? You said, if you want to give, how do we give? You can give the old-fashioned way. You can write a check, put it in the giving box that is at the very back of this room, um, back there, back behind the last row. Or if you wanted to go to our website, you could set your giving up that way. Um, or if you wanted to text to give, um, that is an option as well. So let's talk about next steps real quick. Here's what happened in the first quarter. We baptize, we have next steps that we measure. Um, so we, ha- we baptized one of our friends in the first quarter, but here's the good news. Already in April, in the second quarter, we've baptized like two. Like, so we're getting to, we're, like we're going to be having more and more baptisms. So that's, and that's always exciting. We get to baptize today. That's why this trough is up here. We're not feeding cattle. So there's, we're going to baptize one of our friends. So we had six people that decided they wanted to get on service teams. We had ten people that got involved in groups that said, we want to do community. And then we had 11 first-time givers, 11 people that said, yes, I am in on this, I want to be a part of, of what this church is doing. And then we have 28 members, 28 people that have recovenanted or covenanted for the first time that said, we want to be a part here. So 56 total next steps um, for the first quarter. And we are um, so, so thankful for every one of those. So if you have a next step to take, please come see us at the info table. If you have questions about baptism, if you want to get set up in giving, if you want to get plugged into a team or plugged into a community group, man, the info table is where you get that information. And we would encourage you to take that step toward that at the end of the service. So with that said, let's go ahead and stand as we read God's word today. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. Um, first, but we're going to go all the way through chapter or verse 22 uh, today during the service. So Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. If you have a, a Bible um, with you, again, it's chapter 1, verse 15. If you didn't have one, you picked one, up, one of them up on the way in today. It's on page 222. And, um, and if you didn't, don't worry about it. The words will be on the screen for you. The things I want us to see today are that... This family's calamity sets the stage for this unexpected loyalty, which reveals God's sovereignty. So calamity, loyalty, and sovereignty. Those are the big ideas I want us to look at today. So let's go ahead and look at the scripture. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said... Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to um, see that you are sovereign. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that um, the calamities, the tragedies in our life sets the stage for um, your sovereignty and your goodness to be played out. Even when we can't see it, like Naomi couldn't see it. She's not going to see it in our text today, but by the end of the book, she's going to experience it and see it. God, would you give us the grace to hold on even when we can't see it? And may we see your goodness even in the midst of our pain. 
good. We ask that you would um, give us the faith. Give us the grace to be able to do that. In your good, good name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Um, let's go ahead and look into this. We're going to talk a little bit first about Naomi's calamity. We talked about this quite a bit last week. If you if you missed that or this is your first time here, you can catch that. You can go to YouTube or, or see it on Facebook. But um, we talked mostly last week about Naomi's calamity, but we'll recap it here as quickly as an introduction for today's message, which today's message is called Unexpected Loyalty. Last week it was called Unexpected Tragedy. So today we're looking at Unexpected Loyalty. Loyalty. So here's what has happened. Elimelech, which was Naomi's husband, he came, uh, he moved from Bethlehem. Bethlehem in um, Israel means house of bread. There's a famine in the land. He and his two sons and his wife Naomi move and go to Moab. Now, Moab was not necessarily on friendly terms with Israel. They didn't like one another. They worshiped different gods there. They had been enemies in the past. They didn't get along. But while sojourning in Moab, all of Naomi's men in her life die. Her husband dies first, Elimelech. And then her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they die. And as we mentioned last week, we, we, we kind of guess that this family, they were Israelite in name, but they weren't really deeply committed followers of Yahweh God. Like they, they would follow him, but the fact that they moved away kind of tells us that they kind of doubted, and that's fine, we doubt. But the fact that they named their sons Malon and Kilion, those are not Israel, those are not Jewish names. They're Canaanite names. And they really have kind of like bad meanings. They, it means like sickly or pining or yearning. It can even mean annihilation. But they named their kids Canaanite names, not Jewish names. So they've taken some steps, not only physically, but probably spiritually away from the worship of the one true God whose name is Yahweh. All of these men die. Her husband first, and then her two sons. And she's left with just her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. So her life has not turned out the way she wanted it to. Naomi means lovely or pleasant. But that is not how her life has turned out. And we're going to see that as we get to the end of the passage today. Because at the end of the passage, she's going to say, Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me lovely or pleasant. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. Like, she's a bitter woman <laughs> coming back. To the, I mean, it, that's the, the stage it sets up. So her life has not turned out like she wanted to. There is this calamity. There's this tragedy that has happened in her life. And when that happens, it's hard to see God. It's hard to trust God. It's easy to doubt God when things go bad. And yet, that's often the stage that God orchestrates, that He sets so that we can see His provision. And that's not an easy word to hear. It's certainly not an easy word to experience. But as we look at Scripture over and over and over again, that's how it plays out. 
So we're talking about this, the concept of God's sovereignty today. And I'm just going to put this out there because some of you are here and you're not followers of Jesus yet. You're not a you're not a worshiper of God, but there's some interest. You're thinking about that or you have been brought up um, Christian. You're kind of wondering, is this really the path I want to take? Is how, what makes this God different from the God of Islam or the God of Buddhism or what? You know, what what what's the difference? And I. I'm going to tell you, we believe that our God is in control. Now, here's the problem that that puts in the room. Because as soon as a Christian says, our God is sovereign, our God is in control. Then the next question back is, well, then why are all these bad things happening? Right? That's certainly what Naomi is like. If if he's in control, then, hey, God, you've really messed up my life. You've taken away my husband. You've taken away my two sons. I have no insurance plan. You've really messed things up. And I went away full. And now I'm going back completely destitute and empty. Impoverished. What's up with that, God? And we could, and we wrestle with this. So here's, here's, if we say God is not in control, God is not in control. It's easy to get there because it's easy to doubt his power when things are falling apart in our life. But here's a problem. If you say, if you go down that road and say God's not in control, well then who is? Because you're definitely not. Right? If you were in control, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through, right? And if God's not in control, well now, so what are you left with? I mean, you're just tossed and turned. What sometimes Christians do, and I think this is where Naomi is here, Naomi doesn't doubt that God is in control. We're going to see that later on in the Scripture. But I think she gets to the point where she says, yeah, God's powerful, I just don't know that He cares. I just don't know that He cares about me. Have you ever been there? You know that he's in, you, 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 like your it's been instilled in you. You've seen it. You know he's in control, but things haven't worked out the way you wanted them to. You're like, I just don't know that he cares what's going on in my life because I've begged, I've pleaded, I've asked, and there is no relief from this. The apostle Paul felt that. He begged the Lord three times to take this thorn away from him, and he, God wouldn't do it. And Paul learned in the middle of that that God's grace was sufficient. For him, that his power was made strong in his weakness. But we don't like that. We we like prosperous. We we like prosperity. We like in control. We like everything going smooth. We like comfort. And that's not that's not the breeding ground for God's grace most of the time. So what we find is that Naomi's calamity sets the stage. It's God who's working behind the scenes, but that sets the stage for God's sovereign provision in her life. And your calamity, your tragedy, your pain, your suffering, whatever you're going through right now is setting the stage for God's provision in your life. And you're going to have to wait. And it's probably going to get more painful. I'm saying this and I, I got I got to let you guys know like my my wife is home today recuperating from ACL surgery and we're going through it and I know that pain is the way forward for her 
And that's a hard, hard pill to swallow. And some of you guys are going through pain that is much deeper and much worse than, than that. It's just deep. It's deeper than a knee. It's, it, it's all the way to your heart and it's hard. And you're wondering, is God ever going to get me through this? I hope that you can see some hope as we looked at this unexpected loyalty that is shown to Naomi in her calamity, in her tragedy, in the most unexpected of places from Ruth. A Moabite woman. Who she's telling to go back. She's like, you're not going to, I'm not going to have other sons. I'm not going to, your life is not going to be good if you go back to Israel. You're going to be seen as an outsider. You're going to have to immigrate. And you're not immigrating for a better opportunity. You're immigrating for a worse life. Go back. It, life is bitter for me. It can be better for you in Moab. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. Go back to what is familiar and comfortable for you. And unexpectedly, Ruth says, you've talked enough now. It's my turn. Look at what, he, what she says in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Ruth has been quiet all the way up from here. There's been a lot of talk from Naomi, who is a bitter woman. And Ruth finally speaks up, and she does so firmly, but she also does so with grace and with gentleness. She is God's sovereign provision for Naomi. Even if Naomi can't see it. Let's look at this loyalty that Ruth has do not urge me to leave you or return from following you for where you go I will go where you lodge I will lodge your people should be my people your God my God where you die I will die there I'll be buried may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you I realize I'm reading that fast and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her she said no more you imagine that like the daughter-in-law just shuts her mother-in-law up that, that, it doesn't say what the journey like for, until they get to Bethlehem. I don't know that they talked anymore. The whole rest of the trip. I don't know what that was like. But note the depth of Ruth's loyalty. Do not urge me to leave you. you you've talked enough, Naomi. It's my turn. And I'm not going anywhere. I mean, the idea when, when she said this, like she was waving her hand, like, Orpah had already left. She was like pointing to her sister. Like there was, there was some nonverbal communication. Go back. Go, go that way is good for your life. This way is only pain. Go back. And Ruth's like, no, I'm in. It's, it's inexplicable. It's unexpected. She goes on. She goes, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Ruth is saying, I am committed more to you than I am to my own prosperity. I'm committed to you and you're going that way and that's not a prosperous opportunity for me. I'm more committed to you and going that way than I am to this way toward comfort, toward family, toward the familiar, toward prosper, toward a new marriage, new kids, all that. I'm committed to go with you that way. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and my God, your God, my God. Ruth will no longer identify as a Moabite. But instead, 
will identify as an Israelite. She will no longer identify as a worshiper of Chemosh, which was the chief deity of the Moabite people. But I'm going to be a worshiper of Yahweh. And then she says, where you die, I will be, I, I will be, I will die and I will be buried. This is significant because if you were, for ancient people, they, they may go sojourn in a land for a little ways or a little time, but where they die, they want to be, they want to die in their homeland. If you remember Jacob, Joseph's father, comes down, they sojourn in the land of Egypt for a while because there was a famine all over and Joseph was, had rose to fame and prominence. And he fed his family and took care of them. And when Jacob died, what did he do? He had made Joseph promise before he died, bury me back in Israel. And Joseph had to take him all the way back and bury him there. It was it was just an ancient um, creed, an ancient um, custom that you're just buried in the land that you were born. And we even see that today. It's like, like a lot of us, we buy burial plots. You know, back like with our with our families and our homes, and where I mean, that's we 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 do that even today. Ruth, on the other hand, says, "No, no, no. I'm not just going back. I'm not going back with you until you die, Naomi, and then I'll think that my vow is over and I'll go back. I'm not just applying for like a work visa. No, no, no. She's all in. Where you die." I will die. Naomi was considerably older than Ruth. Naomi was going to die far sooner than Ruth was. Ruth was planning on living even without Naomi in this land until she died. Like she, like burn the ships. She was there. How do we explain this? How do we explain Ruth? A Moabite woman who's been raised to worship the god Shemosh and all of the pantheon of the gods in Moab marries an Israelite family who are not that committed to Yahweh because they left his land and they named their kids other Canaanite names. How do we explain this? We must conclude that Ruth was converted. We must conclude that she had become a worshiper of Yahweh God. That God had gotten a hold of her heart somewhere in those ten years. Even in the midst that, that maybe Elimelech and Naomi didn't have it all together. But, so, but she saw the true God living in and around that family. She saw that this God really does exist. This God is more powerful than all these other gods that I've served all of my life. And so, she follows she says no i there there's nothing for me back there i don't worship those gods anymore all my family does but i don't worship those gods anymore i worship your god naomi i'm following you i love you i would have never known this god if it wouldn't have been for you coming and sojourning in my land Do you see how God sovereignly is orchestrating these events in this life of this family? Naomi probably couldn't see everything clearly at that point. But Ruth saw something that she couldn't deny, that she could not let go of. Let me ask you this.
What about you? Have you been converted? I realize that's kind of an archaic word. But archaic or not, it's a good one. Because you, you don't know God without being converted. The whole concept of being saved means you were saved from something. You were converted from a worshiper of something else to a worshiper of the true and the living God. Have you been converted? Are you a worshiper of Yahweh God, the true God? The God who is above all the other gods. The gods who says all of those other gods, you may think that they're real, but they're not real. But have you worshipped that God? Have you converted to that God? It's, a, it's, a, it's an important question because if you haven't, your life, it just it won't be what God wants it to be. And eternally, like, like your eternity as it is at stake. Have you converted? Have you had a conversion like that? Have you decided to follow Yahweh God regardless of the cost? Have you decided to follow Jesus? So they don't say anything else on the rest of the trip. Presumably. Maybe they do. I like to think that they don't. I like to think that Naomi's probably a little bitter. Just kind of giving Ruth the silent treatment a little bit. Like The reason I say that, it's speculation. But the reason I think that is because her attitude is not exactly good once she gets to Bethlehem. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, now I'm going to stop right there. The whole town is stirred. Um, you got to understand, this is not a town like... Glendale, where there's like 300,000 people. Um, it's probably a smaller town, um, but everybody would have kind of known one another. They would have remembered what Naomi looks like. Um, life has been hard, but they still recognized her. And it says all the women said. And the reason it says all the women said it wasn't a town because this was the time of harvest and all the men would have been out in the field. So all, all the women are here. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about female relational dynamics. Surprise. Um, I know that the Samaritan woman um, that Jesus met at the well in the middle of the day, she had had multiple husbands and she went during the hottest part of the day, which was not when people went to the well, not when all the other women went to the well. They went in the cool of the day when it's easier. She went in the hottest part of the day because she didn't like the shame, she didn't like the reproach, and she didn't want to have to deal with all of the other women's looks and glances and questions and snarky remarks. So you got to think that Naomi, who was probably someone who was prosperous, from a prosperous family, coming back in here, it's like she's having to like you know eat crow. This is swallowing her pride. And everybody's like, is that Naomi? Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And look at her reaction. She said to them, don't call me Naomi. What does Naomi mean? It means lovely or pleasant. She says, don't call me that. My life isn't lovely or pleasant. 
Like she's denying her identity. She's so hurt, so wounded, that she's like, just call me, call me what it is. Call me Mara. Which means bitter. And then she says this, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's, it's kind of a play on words. It's almost like, call me Mara because God has marred me. The Almighty, the word here is not Yahweh. It's another word for God. It means Shaddai. And it means completely powerful. And generally in the, in the scriptures, it's meant to bring comfort. That God is our comforter, our protector. He is all powerful. But here, Naomi, she says, no, the Almighty... The one who has all power has afflicted me. I went away full. The Lord, now she uses the word Yahweh, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? Why call me lovely? When the Lord has testified against me. Oh, now she sees herself like in a court with God. And God has testified against her, has pronounced judgment against her. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Can you just see the hurt coming out? I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you've been and I don't know where you're going. But there are times in our lives. There's been times in my life where I've. It's hard to read those words. Because they resonate so deeply. And you're wondering, God, why? Why is it happening like this? She went away full. She was brought back empty. She went away with a husband and son. She was brought back a childless widow. She went away prosperous. She's brought back as a beggar. Here's what I want to point out to you today. Because I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers to your pain, your suffering, your trauma, the things you've been through. I'm not going to pretend to have all those answers. I'm not God. I'm not all powerful. I'm not all knowing. But I do, want, I do think there is something that we can learn from Naomi, even in the midst of her pain. Because regardless of her attitude, she gets one thing right. That God is in control. Even if she doesn't like it or approve of what he has done, she acknowledges that he is the one who has done it. You say, well, what's good about that? Here's, here's what's good about it. It is better to acknowledge God's sovereignty and be bitter about it than to conclude that God lacks the ability or the concern to do anything about your circumstances. It, I'm going I'm to say that again. It is better to acknowledge God's sovereignty and be bitter about it than to conclude that God lacks the ability or the concern to do anything about your circumstances. Here's why. You can worship Him and not understand Him. You can worship Him and not understand His ways 
or his methods or his tactics or his schedule or his agenda or his timing. You can still worship him and not know any of those things. But the second, the second you reason away or you rationalize away his power, his knowledge or his presence, you handicap your ability to worship him. You cripple yourself and you'll worship lesser things. You will not worship something that you deem inept or unworthy. You will not worship something that you deem inept or unworthy. Naomi may not be a picture of stalwart, bulwark type faith. But she gets one thing right. God's in control. I may not like it, but He is the one who is in charge of all of this. And I realize that for some of you, that's a bitter pill to swallow. That's a hard pill to swallow. But Ruth accepted it too. Let's not forget, Ruth has lost a husband. She's a young woman. Who's lost a husband. And she's moving toward Israel. A foreign land. Where she her life is could very well be at danger. We're going to see that more in the, in the upcoming weeks. But she's taking on this risk. Why? Because she's a follower of Yahweh God. She's been converted. There's no other explanation. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here's a, the, the chapter ends with this little glimpse of hope. They, they come at the end of barley harvest. They left because there was a famine in Bethlehem. They go trying to find food elsewhere. That turns out poorly and now they come back to the land There's a lot of brokenness. There's probably a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of second guessing. But God has sent a harvest. God has sent food. There's hope. God was sovereign over the loss of Elimelech and Mahalon and Kilion. God was sovereign over the provision of Ruth. Had had. Naomi not experienced the pain of the loss of her husband and two sons, she would have never experienced the grace of the provision of her daughter-in-law. God is sovereign over all human affairs. Not just the good times, but He's sovereign over the bad. Think about this for just a second. When we sing, when we celebrate, you, like we can sing songs about God's character and about His um, justice. And we can sing songs about just His glory and His honor. And we can talk about just how great our God is and how awesome our God is. We sing songs like that and we should sing songs like that. But you know what the songs we sing most of the time are? They're songs about His grace and His mercy. Those are the songs that really pull on our heartstrings. Those are the songs that really draw us into worshiping Him. That helps us see His greatness. And we wouldn't do that 
if we wouldn't have experienced the pain of the circumstances or the sin that caused it. You would never know the fullness of God's grace had you not known the pain of the sin which made the grace necessary. I'm not saying that God is the author of sin. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that our God is sovereign enough, is powerful enough to redeem us out of that and even use the bad circumstances and the suffering and yes, even the sin in our lives to bring us to a fuller knowledge of Him. You may not understand it right now, but God does. He is sovereign over all human affairs. And your hope doesn't need to be, I'll figure this out or we'll figure this out. The Christian hope, the follower of Yahweh hope, is God has got this figured out. I may not, but God does. So as we wrap this up, Ruth is a picture of conversion, and I'm going to invite you to convert today if you don't know Him. You don't have to have everything figured out to know Him. You won't have everything figured out, even after you know Him. He'll be more of a mystery to you, I promise you. But you can know Him. But Ruth also points us to Jesus. Look at this. Ruth chose poverty over comfort. So did Jesus in the incarnation. He dwelled in the throne room of God and He took on human flesh and blood and became one of us. Born in a manger to a a poor family. Ruth became one of Naomi's people. Jesus became one of us. God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Naomi, or or Ruth, she said that she would die and be buried as an Israelite. And Jesus suffered a real human death and a real human burial. Naomi, or Ruth, invokes a curse that if she broke her word, may a curse happen to her. Jesus Christ kept His word and took on our curse. Because we didn't keep our word. And Ruth showed unexpected loyalty to Naomi. And Christ shows us unexpected, undeserved loyalty. You say, well, what do we do with all this? There's four invitations I want to give to us today as we wrap this up. Number one, I've already mentioned it a couple of times. I want to invite you that if you don't know this God, if you're not a follower of Yahweh, if you're not a worshiper of Him, I want to invite you to convert. I want to invite you to just simply pray today. Say, God, I worship you. God, would you forgive me of my sin? I trust what Jesus has done on the cross for my sin. I trust that He rose from the grave. I don't understand all of it. But Jesus, I want you. And if you say that and you mean that, that's called conversion. And God will start changing you from the inside out. So that's the first thing. I want to invite you to convert. To become a Christian. To become a follower of God today. Number two. Two, not two. Two. If you say, I'm not ready I'm not ready to become a follower of Jesus today. I, man, I, I've got more questions. I just want to invite you into a conversation. 
Like I said, I'm wearing the red mask. You can come find me. I'll be easy to spot. You can come talk to me. Or you can talk to whoever brought you today. Just have a conversation. Come get coffee with, with me or someone and, and let's, let's talk about it. Number three, if you're a Christian, if you're already a follower of Yahweh God, I want to invite you to take communion. You take that wafer, which represents the body of Christ, His perfect righteousness given for us, the life He lived. And we drink that juice representative of His blood that He shed on the cross that cleanses us from all of our sin, that makes us right before God. And we remember what He has done, the unexpected loyalty that Christ has shown us. And we get to remember that in a tangible way. And then lastly, I want to invite you to sing with us as a congregation. We sing and we celebrate the grace and the mercy of God, the goodness that He has shown toward us. And you say, I don't know that I can sing the words. That's fine. Let us sing them over you. But know this. If you find yourself moved, if you find yourself moved during the service and you start to sing that what's going on in here starts coming out of your mouth, know that God's doing something. That's not by accident. That's not by chance. And that's not just because of your own mental processes. Out of the abundance of the heart, it comes out of the mouth. So, conversion, conversation, communion, singing with us as a congregation. After communion, people just start standing up as Kyle leads us. And we invite you to stand and to sing with us. You may not be taking communion today. You may not be a Christian today. You may still need to have a conversation, but we invite you to sing. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to get off the stage. We're going to sing, and then we're going to get to baptize one of our friends. Okay? Jesus, thank you for this day. God, move among your people. Save your people, God. In your good, good name we ask it. Amen.